When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 291 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, I am answering a listener's question about what we should be considering before we buy or before we lease our next vehicle. There are so many options on the market these days. There's EVs, there's plug-in hybrids, there's hybrids, and there are conventional vehicles. So what do we need to know before we make this gigantic purchase? Well, here to help me answer this question is an expert. Today, I'm speaking with John Linkov. He is the deputy autos editor over at Consumer Reports, and his wealth of information is likely going to blow you away. And listeners, I just want to make sure that I am not wasting your time today. In the first part of today's conversation, John is breaking down all the big and all the tiny intricacies between these three technologies. So if you already know a decent amount about how a plug-in hybrid, for example, differs from an electric vehicle, you might want to skip ahead and skip this part of the conversation because, again, I don't want to waste your time. But you do need to have a fundamental understanding of how these types of vehicles are different before you go into part two of today's conversation. So you are your own expert. If you need to skip ahead, skip ahead to minute 830-ish, and that will bring you to the rest of my conversation with John. You can pick up there and miss nothing. John, I'm really thrilled to talk to you today. As the deputy autos editor over at Consumer Reports, I have visions of you just having a blast, testing cars on a racetrack all day long. Is this accurate? It was at one point earlier in my career, definitely to spend a little more time driving. I'm on the editorial side, so I definitely am in all the vehicles that we are testing, but there's also days that I'm behind my desk. Today, we are talking about how my listeners can decide which new car is right for them the next time they need to purchase a new car. And this episode, I really wanted to do because my 12-year-old hybrid It has, I think, 180-something thousand miles on it. Stuff is breaking. Expensive stuff is breaking. So let's make sure we're all on the same page with regard to what these three different types of cars are, how they're different. Let's start with the hybrid because they've been around for a long time. What on earth is a hybrid vehicle? Certainly, hybrids have been around for decades almost. Toyota is probably the best-known manufacturer. A hybrid vehicle marries a smaller battery, a small electric motor, and a conventional gasoline-powered motor together. 
At times with hybrids, you can drive on electricity, but only at real low speeds, almost slightly more than gliding. But basically what happens is that when you need to accelerate, when you need power, the hybrid system generally will kick in to help. So you're not really using as much gasoline. You're not running the engine as hard to do things, driving around town, accelerating on the highway. The hybrid system's in there to help. That's why you're getting such great fuel economy. With the Toyota Prius, you're getting into the 50s now. With the Honda Insight, SUVs that you're getting into the 30 mile per gallon range. These are numbers that you're not seeing from a regular conventional gas powered vehicle. I must say my 12 year old hybrid, it's getting 45-ish miles to the gallon. And that has been so helpful as gas prices have risen this summer. But now let's talk about the plug-in hybrid. This, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is newer technology. What on earth is a plug-in hybrid? So a plug-in hybrid basically is a conventional hybrid, but it has a larger battery. It may even have a slightly bigger motor. And it's a vehicle that you can plug in to charge that larger battery so that you can run purely on electricity for a short amount of time. So depending on the vehicle, you can do anywhere between 20 and 40 miles of pure electric driving. You can accelerate, go up a hill, pass people, and it's going to purely run on the battery. And then once you don't have any electricity left in the battery there, the vehicle reverts basically to hybrid operation. So you go from pure EV, electric vehicle mode, to a hybrid operation. And they still get very good mileage. They're still going to get not quite near as a hybrid just because it's a heavier vehicle. You're carrying around a little more weight but it still gets excellent mileage. And if you have a really short drive, if you're just driving around town, if you have a short commute, you can plug in, charge it relatively quickly, a few hours, and then drive almost as an electric vehicle without having that range anxiety that that we'll likely talk about down the road. (laughs) That's almost my next question. But the plug-in hybrid technology is newer. So would you say in your hours on the track that these plug-in hybrids on the market are worth the money? Should consumers be waiting a couple of years until the kinks are flushed out or are the ones on the market, are they great and ready to be enjoyed? They're certainly ready to be enjoyed right now. They're very good vehicles. Some are a little less useful than the other ones because they have a limited range. If you're only getting 20 miles of range in the vehicle, it may not be the best investment simply because you're spending a premium over a hybrid to get this vehicle that can only drive, again, 20 miles on electricity. Now it's quick to charge. And if you have free charging here and free charging downtown and you have a charger in your house, it may eventually pay for itself. But if you're looking dollars and cents, at that point, it's going to make a better uh, financial decision or financial choice to go with a conventional hybrid rather than pay the premium on that. So I think what I hear you saying is that a plug-in hybrid is a step towards like a little tiny toe towards an electric vehicle. And we are going to talk about electric vehicles today. The zero tailpipe emissions option on the car market. Really quick for anybody who is confused about what an electric vehicle is. First of all, where have you been? EVs have definitely reached their tipping point. I drove a Prius circa 2008 and I was not cool. My car was not cool. But these days... Tesla, so cool, so sleek. People who don't care about tailpipe emissions are driving around town in their cool, sleek Tesla. So for anybody who doesn't know what an electric vehicle is, give us your professional definition. An electric vehicle, or you'll hear people talk about it as an EV, or some areas you'll hear it referred to as a BEV, a battery electric vehicle. That's maybe an earlier term. 
And basically it is a pure electric vehicle, drives only on electricity. It does not use a internal combustion engine at all. Whereas a hybrid and even the plug-in hybrids use an internal combustion engine, uses gasoline. You have to charge it using a, a, an electric charger. So whether it's in your house or whether it's at work or local downtown has one or a uh, supermarket, etc. That's where you would fill up the vehicle, so to speak. Pros for it, certainly there's no tailpipe emissions. You can charge it overnight at your house. So that's a benefit. You're not running off to the gas station, so to speak. You can come home at night, plug it in if you have a charger. You need to have, it's like a dryer, an electric dryer outlet. You have to have that somewhere in your house, a garage or outside. Because if you're using the 120 volt level one charging, it's called, it's just very slow. You're not filling a Tesla up or a Chevrolet Bolt, the BOLT. You're not filling up the Hyundai Ionic 5, any of these full EVs overnight from empty on 120. Now, rarely will you drive an electric vehicle all the way down to zero, but there is a chance. And at that point, it, it would take hours, 11, 12, 13 hours to do it on 110, if not longer. So with a 240 charger, it'll take an overnight. It'll take somewhere seven, eight, nine hours, depending on what it is, but you're doing it while you're asleep. You're doing it while you're not driving. You're driving this vehicle that is, is not putting out emissions. You're driving a vehicle that you're not waiting in line for gas. You're paying less money than if you were filling up a similar vehicle with gasoline, even at higher electricity rates. And a lot of them, many of them are eligible for tax credits, both federal as well as state and sometimes local. And then you may get something from your electric company as well for putting in a charger and letting them monitor it. So there's a lot of money that you can get with an EV that you're not going to be able to get with a gasoline car. And you may get some with a hybrid. Thank you for those definitions, John. Now I want to talk to you about the considerations that listeners should have in the back of their minds when they go to potentially purchase a new vehicle, a new type of vehicle. And the first consideration always is the purchase price. I think we all know that hybrids are a little bit more expensive than conventional vehicles and electric vehicles are a little bit more expensive than the hybrids. These new technologies have been on the market for a while. Have the prices come down on the EVs or the hybrids at all? The way we are now, first of all, with inflation, but secondly, with the gas prices, hybrids are being sold at a premium by dealers. So there's a additional dealer markup and ADM. Uh, it's a market adjustment, whatever lingo they want to use. You're often seeing that hybrids are hard to find. Conventional gas vehicles while challenging to find, are easier to find in comparison. And it goes back to the same as you talk about your 2008, when gas prices back then were super high, all of a sudden you get pickup trucks at a discount and hybrids had a premium. Two years before that, nobody wanted a hybrid and everyone wanted a pickup truck. So it goes with the cycle of fuel prices. But in general, yes, a hybrid's a little more. The plug-in hybrid will then come at a premium on top of that. The Toyota RAV4 Prime is certainly much more expensive than a regular RAV4 and a RAV4 hybrid, but it's a nicer vehicle inside as well. So there's leather, there's more standard features. It has the added benefit of being a little quicker, a little more responsive. So it's almost a different animal, if you will. EVs still are premium priced. You're talking the, the least expensive are the Nissan Leaf, Chevrolet Bolt, the Hyundai Kona electric. They are being discounted their older technology. The Bolt is relatively new, but the other ones are slightly older models. They're much more entry-level. The key in the Hyundai and the Nissan 
are still eligible for the $7,500 federal tax credit. You can get them in, if they're available in the high $20,000, low $30,000 range before the credits. Chevrolet has used up their credits. You can't get those with the Bolt. So they're at a pricing disadvantage in some ways. But other ones are still in the, maybe with if you're figuring in the incentives in the $40,000 range, but really a lot of them are in $50,000, $60,000 range. So you, you pay a lot for that vehicle, but it's an investment in the sense of you're putting in a charger and you're likely holding on to this vehicle for a while, or you're into this B world. And right now you can buy one and probably flip it relatively easily if you needed to a year or so down the road. Um, if it just didn't work out for you, because they're still, they're desirable. They're increasing in sales numbers and people are clamoring for some of them. You said a lot there that I want to touch on. For listeners who have price as their number one purchasing concern, what are your thoughts on choosing a used EV model? As with any vehicle purchase, it's just key really to know the history of the car. No one has really used up the battery on an EV at this point. So even if you're buying one of the more early Teslas, the more mass-produced mainstream early models, you still are going to have decent life. There's outliers. But for the most part, buying a used EV, a good way to, again, dip your toe into the market if you wish without a huge investment. You don't get the credits. You don't get the tax the benefit of that. The thing with some of them, with Tesla in particular, is Tesla sometimes will turn off technology because they can do that remotely. And then you'll have to buy the technology again, so to speak. So the autopilot, the advanced driver assistance systems, things like that you may have to pay for. So you have to pay Tesla after you buy the vehicle from someone. Probably the best financial decision really is to go into the world of a hybrid purely if you're looking for saving money and gas and fuel efficiency at this point in time. Well, you mentioned the federal tax credit there a few times. So tell us more about that. I'm not sure that everybody listening even knows that here in America, there is a federal tax credit. And I know that it's not on all models. So break that down for all of us. Certainly. So the federal tax credit, it's up to $7,500, but it's a credit. So unlike other incentives such as a rebate or something like that, you only get the money as a credit against your taxes. So if you file federal income taxes and you owe, that money, depending on the vehicle you buy, can wipe out up to $7,500 of your bill. So the first thing that we suggest here at Consumer Reports is definitely talk to a tax professional if you're anticipating buying an electric vehicle and applying for this credit, because you don't want to end up being someone who is worried about the IRS, pays a little more each paycheck, you expect a refund, and then you say, oh, I'm going to get $7,500 back. You're not going to get anything. They don't cut you a check. So it's good to plan your taxes that way. Basically, it's based on the size of the battery, and it goes up to a certain size. So the hybrids, plug-in hybrids would get credits. The vehicles will get credits based on the size of their battery up to the $7,500. And then if a manufacturer sells 200,000 vehicles, so specifically sold 200,000 plugins, EVs, what have you, then the credit begins to phase out and it's a certain calendar time and it goes to half. And then after a certain period of time, it goes to half again, and then it's done. There's a lot of talk in Congress about being able to extend this so that there's not a limit on it. There's a lot of talk about Congress also extending it maybe to even use vehicles. If you're buying a used vehicle, you get a credit again. But right now it's capped at 200,000. General Motors, Tesla, and now Toyota 
or the manufacturers who've reached it. Toyota's in the beginning of the phase-out stage starting this October. So if you're looking to buy a Toyota plug-in or an EV, do it now so you get the full credit because on October 1st, it begins to phase-out. So helpful, John. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to talk about charging stations, access to charging stations, planning a road trip around finding a charging station. We're going to talk about all those considerations after a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high-quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game-changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. And we're back with John Linkov. He is the Deputy Autos Editor over at Consumer Reports, and we are discussing all things cars. What should you consider before buying your next vehicle? Is it time for an EV? Is it time for a hybrid? Or are we going back to that regular gas-guzzling conventional car? Before the break, we discussed purchase price. That is generally the number one concern consumers have before buying anything, but particularly such a big purchase like a car. Now, Jen, I want to talk to you about charging and charging stations. For a lot of consumers, the charging question for the plug-in hybrids and the EVs, that is stress-inducing. However, as I was preparing for this episode, I learned that the average American's commute is 32 miles round trip. So to work and back, 32 miles. That's the average American's commute. Based on that number of 32 miles, are our concerns with regard to charging and maybe being left on the side of the road with no battery power, are those concerns warranted? 
when we first bought our Nissan Leaf, the first generation one that we tested, it was only sold in California. We ordered it. It was shipped across the country. It was dropped off at our test track. We charged it for a little bit. I drove it home that night, 22 miles away. And I had, I think about 40 something miles, 50 miles of range left. And the next morning was cold and rainy and dark. And I had to drive on the highway and I ran the heat because it was so chilly and I ran out of electricity. You know, that, that's a growing pain. Now, someone may listen and say, you were pushing it and you should have known. And I, and, and certainly I was a pioneer, if you want to say, within the Leaf for our company, but it is anxiety producing. And the key thing really to think about is how do you drive normally? We're not at a point in time right now where you can't find a gasoline car. So you can't rent a gasoline car, you can't own one, you can't borrow one. If you take a long trip once a year that exceeds 230 miles at a clip, let's just say, you may want to rent a car and own an EV. If you daily drive 120, 130 miles, 140 miles, or even 200, okay, maybe you want to wait until your area is more populated with chargers. But for the most part, and I'll tell you from my experience, I do have a charger in my house. And I am about 25 miles from our test track. There are plenty of times where I have taken home an EV. I have driven it all around. I've driven my kids to school, to the camp bus. I've even had to drive to camp to pick them up for a doctor's appointment, come home, bring it back to the test track. I don't have to charge it. I've driven 200 something miles and I still have range. Cold affects batteries. Extreme heat affects batteries. Running the heat in the car, things like that. They definitely do have a greater drain on the battery. You may have to adjust a little bit of your driving. A lot of it is just people don't know. And until you experience it, and it's a big thing to take a big step in and say, I'm going to buy this and find out if it works for me. It's a big thing. I think it's important to remember too that electric vehicles on the low end will go around 100 miles to on the high end, around 300 miles. And then the sweet spot, the average is around the 200 mile range you can go before needing a charge. You did mention there that you have a charging station in your home. I'm wondering, what does that entail? The thought of calling an electrician, getting that gigantic charger in the garage is another step towards an EV or a plug-in hybrid purchase. And then there's that added cost too. So tell us more about that. Certainly. So we tried out at Consumer Reports a number of chargers. I'm not endorsing the one I bought, but it was very simple. The one I bought was is by a company, Juicebox. It's one of the ones that was that performed well in our evaluations. We didn't put them through full tests. Size-wise, it's not too massive. It has a long cord, but it's not a big item. Certainly understand people who are in apartments or condos, it's much more difficult if impossible. People with older houses, detached garages, but also there's so many, so much information out there as far as people in your area, electricians who are knowledgeable about this. The better electricians wherever you live will have said, oh, this is something that I should investigate. I should brush up on. I should know about. And they'll be that person who almost leads you to what the best solution is. The electrician I found has, had done a number of installs and he and I chatted about it the best place. So it really wasn't a logistical problem. It was quicker than I thought. It's certainly an investment. It could, could be $1,000, $1,400 for a charger, depending on what you buy. It could be three, four, $500, depending on how much time it takes the electrician to do it. But when, once you're there, now you have the ability to charge in your house and you're not visiting that gas station at all. And as long as it's not a power outage, you're not going to worry about having a place to be able to charge. Whereas if you're relying on going to work, for example, 
and charging at work, someone may be charging during the day and you'll have to run out and plug in. So it is that benefit of having a charging station available for you. And you just do that. You're charging at home versus somewhere else. I'd like to transition and discuss maintenance costs. With these new technologies, do they need more frequent service appointments? Are such services more expensive than conventional vehicles? Talk to me. So one of the benefits of, a, of an EV in particular versus the plug-in hybrid or a hybrid is that you're doing away with a lot of the regular maintenance issues that you were dealing with a gasoline, a combustion, internal combustion engine. You know, so there's no oil changes, for example. You're not dealing with just a, a lot of the regular maintenance that you're, you know, catalytic converters going bad after a certain amount of time, exhausts, issues. There's just things that you don't have to deal with. You're eliminating that. But they still are vehicles. So what we've seen in our data is not always that the electrical systems are problematic, but a lot of the vehicles, if they suffer from problems, they do suffer from similar ones to conventional vehicles with other electronics, infotainment systems. There could be transmission things. There either could be the climate control. There could be a suspension issue. So you're not getting away of the some of the problems that you might still find rear their head with a regular car, but you're getting rid of some of the day-to-day maintenance stuff. There are other things, however, that you may never have thought about cooling for the electric motor, but they do need that. And this isn't a problem. It's just an example. Audi, with their e-tron electric vehicle, has a service interval where you have to change the fluid for the coolant for the, the rear axle, for the drive motor. That's not something that someone that you might think, oh, the coolant for that, that, that's an interesting thing. So there are other services, but you do get rid of some of the more common ones that are little niggles, if you will, with owning a gasoline-powered vehicle. It's a trade-off, but we've seen that the electrical systems have been very robust. The most reliable vehicles by far that you could talk about, Toyota Prius, the Toyota hybrid systems have just been great. They have their new EV out. We'll see how that is. But if you're worried really about the electrical system, I would look at a established manufacturer versus one that's a startup, so to speak. But rest assured, you'll probably have more issues with the touchscreen infotainment system and the climate control thing versus driving to and from where you need to. Interesting. My final question for you, John, is for the listeners who just love to drive. They have a joy of driving. Early hybrids, perhaps even the early EVs, they had a (laughs) reputation of being decidedly not fun to drive. And I am looking at my 2008 Prius. (laughs) Are the alternate technologies that we've been discussing today on the market, there are so many of them, are they fun to drive? And in your answer, I'm wondering if you can talk specifically to people who are, I'm assuming you love to drive as the deputy audio's editor, but talk to people like you who just have a joy of driving and are reluctant to drive some boring, ho-hum, slow, low acceleration vehicle. <laughs> well, I'll first put aside the notion that today's hybrids and EVs are slow just because they all del- deliver the electric power immediately. So yes, the early Priuses and the GM EV1 electric car what, a year, decades ago at this point, yeah, they're all tuned for fuel efficiency. The auto manufacturers saw the market being fuel efficient. They didn't see it as being performance. They were attracting a buyer who was concerned about that. And the, and the car was built for that. And the technology really needed to be built for that. 
today, I mean, I mean, I have an older sports car in my garage, and I'll tell you that all of the EVs, all, and most of the hybrids that we test today are quicker than it. It's just off the line. If you think about the an electric vehicle, electricity for that vehicle delivers it like a light switch. It's on, it's off, or it's off, and then it's on, and you have full power, and you could zip away. There are ones that are certainly more enjoyable handling-wise. Uh, you know, Porsche, for example, makes the Taycan. It's expensive. Yes, it's a Porsche. But it shows that you can have a sports car that's an electric vehicle. Their next generation, smaller sports car is going to be electric only or have an electric only option. There are models out there. More are coming. The Kia EV6 is enjoyable to drive. The Hyundai Ioniq 5 is enjoyable to drive. BMW has an i4. It's almost as exciting to drive, fun to drive as their M4 sports sedan. So there are options. There's a trade-off, of course. Like any sports car, tires are going to be grippier, more expensive. They'll wear out quicker. You're going to use up the electricity in the battery quicker. It's just like anything. You floor it in your gas-powered sports car, you're going to use up the gas. You floor it in the EV, you're going to use up the electricity. So it's a different feeling. But there are cars out there for the driving enthusiast albeit right now they are a little more expensive. You mentioned the Porsche Taycan there. And as I was researching for this episode, I was shocked to learn that that model comes in at, or starts, excuse me, at around $150,000. But thank you also for mentioning the less expensive options on the market as well. And so what I hear you saying, John, is that we are at a unique moment in time with regard to the automobile conversation because there is a vehicle for every one and every type of driver. Is that what you're saying? Definitely. I, I would say that the driver that has the hardest time finding something is going to be someone looking for an entry-level car, something that's in the fourteen dollars to $20,000 range with an EV just simply because of the cost of the technology and what automakers are charging and have to put in a vehicle or they thought they've had to put in a vehicle to entice people to come into it, make it a little nicer, a little more leather, a little more sound deadening. Someone who's, you know, in a more of an entry level car, you would look for that, that used EV, a pre-owned one, but they are coming down in price. You're seeing more and more auto manufacturers are introducing vehicles that have a little bit of performance from it as well as electrical efficiency. So I wouldn't say every single person is going to get exactly what they want but it's getting much closer as far as the offerings out there. I will link to the research that we discussed today via Consumer Reports in this week's show notes. John, I want to thank you for an amazing content-rich discussion, and I hope to have you on the show again, maybe 10, 15 years in the future, and we can discuss how the electric vehicle market changes. We are in a moment of such transition, which I personally, as somebody who knows nothing about cars, doesn't really care about driving. I think that's cool. So thank you so much. Stephanie, I enjoyed it greatly. Thank you very much. <laughs> Listeners, that's a wrap. Everything John and I talked about, you can find in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 291. Friendly reminder to reach out to me if you have a question or a topic or a product you'd like covered on this show, send me an email, reach out on social media. Links are in the show notes for that. I love, love, love answering listeners' questions. It's my favorite part of what I do. So reach out. No question is a silly question. And definitely, here's my teacher and me coming out. No question is a stupid question. For the listeners who have reached out with questions and I haven't answered them yet, 
rest assured, I'm working on your questions and I will be responding to them. Just, I need some time. (laughs) I will see you on Thursday. Reach out if you need me. Reach out with your questions. Leave that rating and review. Just do it. And thank you so much. See you Thursday. Bye-bye.